0: do the uh, reading for today, which comes from Genesis 29 and through chapter 30, verse 24. Then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep. And put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming from the sheep with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. But they said, "'We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well, then we water the sheep.' While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with his father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother.' Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son and she ran and told her father As soon as Laban heard the news about his about Jacob his sister's son he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house Jacob told Laban all these things and Laban said to him Surely you are bone of my flesh and he stayed with him a month Then Laban said to Jacob because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other, uh, any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his, his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld you from the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So so she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah, And gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, It is a small matter, is it a small matter, that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he laid with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I, have my servant, have, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Diana. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. The reading of the word.
1: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word. We desire, Lord, to hear your voice, and we come and ask, Lord, give us open hearts, give us open ears to hear what your spirit would say to us as a church and as individuals this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So we are studying through Genesis on Sunday mornings, and, um, you know just a a great study through a really fundamental book. I think the best way to describe the book of Genesis is as a mosaic, right? Because a mosaic, uh, as a mosaic, it's made up of a lot of Small stories, right? And each story stands on its own and has something to teach us about God and about ourselves, but if you put all the stories together, they form a bigger picture. There's a bigger story here of how God work is working out his plan of redemption and salvation for a world that is plagued by sin and death. So Genesis really itself, if you, if you go with that mosaic theme, Genesis itself also is a piece in an even greater mosaic, the mosaic of the story of salvation and redemption. And this is a story which began the moment that sin entered the world, and it reached its climax on the cross of Calvary, and it will reach its final conclusion when Christ returns again at some point in the future. This is a story that, in reality, all of us are living out. Each of your lives is a piece in this grand mosaic that God is creating of salvation and redemption. And that's why here at Whitefields, what we do is, is we don't just study popular topics, but we want to study the whole counsel of God's word. Because each part, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, whether it's a psalm or a prophet or an epistle, these are all pieces of the same mosaic, which is the gospel. The story of what God has done for us in Christ to save us, to reconcile us, to restore us, to redeem us because of his great love for us. So today we're looking at an episode in the life of Jacob. This is the episode where he gets married, he has children. In the grand mosaic of the gospel, this story is an important piece of the bigger story of the birth of the nation of Israel. And the birth of the nation of Israel itself is also a piece in an even grander story, which is the story of how God, what we call it the incarnation, how God revealed himself to the world through this nation Israel, revealing himself and then coming to the world as the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But at the same time, as in a mosaic, right? each of these pieces, each of these stories, and this one included, it's able to stand on its own, and it's able to teach us a lot about practical Christian living. So our our title for our teaching today is uh, Rachel and Leah, Sister Wives, because that's what they were, and I hope you brought your Bible. If you did, please follow along. We'll be in Genesis 29 and 30, and this is how we're going to break it down. From verses 1 through 30 of chapter 29, we're going to talk about Jacob's love for Rachel. Then from verses 31 to 35, we're going to talk about Leah's longing for Jacob. And then chapter 31 through 24, we talk about Rachel's yearning for children. So, Jacob's love for Rachel, Leah's longing for Jacob, and Rachel's yearning for children. Let's begin in the first section, Jacob's love for Rachel. Follow along if you got your Bible. To catch you up to speed, here's what's going on in our story. Jacob is running for his life because uh, his big hairy brother Esau wants to kill him. Uh, Jacob is not a great guy at this point. He's probably not a guy that you would want to be friends with. He has some major character flaws. Uh, He is a liar and a deceiver. He is a coward. Um, we get the impression that he's also a major underachiever, right? He's now over 50 years old, and he's never really grown up yet. Uh, he's never he's he's never moved out of the house. He's always lived at home. He's never been married, you know. Until now, he hasn't really shown any interest in being married and starting his own family. He's never had his own job. Never stood on his own two feet and paid his own bills. His best friend is still his mom. That says a lot, you know. And, And when he finds out that his brother is angry at him and wants to kill him, what does he do? He avoids the conflicts and he packs up his Barbie dolls and he runs away, right? So his mom lives in Haran, or his mom's family lives in Haran. Now that is about 550 miles away from where he lives and his family lives in Beersheba. So that's kind of convenient. That gives him a place where he can go to and hide out for a little while while uh, he's hoping that his brother will stop wanting to kill him. So what we saw last week was that as Jacob is journeying to Haran, one night God shows up and reveals himself to Jacob in a dream. And what happens is Jacob becomes a believer. Up until that point, he's just been borrowing the faith of his parents. As so many kids do, right? Up until that point, that he has an encounter with God. And his faith becomes his own. And when Jacob has this vision of God, when God reveals himself to Jacob, what does Jacob do? He responds to that grace. He says, wow, if this is who God is, then I will put my faith in him. I will worship him, and I will serve him all the days of my life. That's what he says. So what does Jacob do? We see real change in his life. He begins tithing. He begins worshiping. He commits himself to walking with the Lord. Uh, That's what we would call getting saved, being born again. Uh, This is what happened in our story last week. Jacob came to faith in God as his Lord and Savior. So what we're at today is this. We've got Jacob, and he's a brand new believer. He's a new believer. And now what we're going to see today is the beginning of that part of his life, which the New Testament refers to as sanctification, Now that means this, that you become a Christian, and then God begins to work on your character. He puts his spirit inside of you, and he begins to change you from the inside out. He begins to work on your life and root out sin and folly and rebellion, and he begins to grow you and make you more like Jesus, growing your faith, forming your character. You know, that's where most of us are at who are here today. If you've already put your faith in Jesus, that's where you're at right now in your walk with God. So God has a plan for Jacob's life. God is going to take this man, who is deceitful and cowardly, and he's going to transform his life, and he's going to make him into a patriarch. He doesn't look like a patriarch yet. That's why God's got to work on him a little bit. This is the gospel, right? That God will accept you just as you are. He's not shocked by your sin. He doesn't say, Ew. You're gross. Get away from me. You know, he doesn't say that to anyone. Rather, he says, come to me just as you are, with all your sin, all your imperfection, and I will pour grace on you. I will pour blessing on you and forgiveness. And if you will take my hand and walk with me, I'll take you beyond that. I'll transform you. I will change you from the inside out. I will make you into the person that I know you can be, that I desire you to be. I'll make you a person who's joyful, a person who's fulfilled, and ultimately a person who is actually a blessing to others. That's the whole picture of the gospel. That God saves us, but then he begins to sanctify us. And how does he go about doing that work of sanctification practically? Well, let's look at Jacob's story here. And what we see is in the next few chapters, we see that God is sovereign over the circumstances of our lives. And God uses the circumstances of Jacob's life as the means by which to form his character and mature him and sanctify him. So here's how this goes down, right? After walking for over 500 miles, Jacob finally gets to Padan Aram. Now this is this is where his family lives. So he sees a well, which is kind of a gathering place in that society. So he goes over to the well and he starts talking to people and he says, Hey, do, do you, any of you guys know a man named Laban? You know, he's my uncle. He's not expecting me, but I'm here. I want to find out where he lives. I don't know where, where he stays. So these people, you know, this is how you did things before there were cell phones. I know there's a few of you here who still remember this. You, you had to, like, go. It was a hassle. You had to go and talk to people and be like, Hey, do you know where this is? And they would be like, Yeah, it's over there. And Well, we're all glad that those days are over, but... Uh, here's what they had to do. It was a hassle. So he finds some people. They're like, yeah, we know who Laban is. And actually, that's his daughter coming here this way right now. So, okay, cool. So uh, Jacob, he's standing there talking to these guys. If you're following along in the text, you see, he asks them, hey, so why are you guys standing around this well right here? Uh, What are you doing? Why don't you just water your sheep and then take them out to the pasture? And they say, Well, we can't water our sheep until the stone has been removed from the top of the well. And that's a big, heavy stone. It takes a couple of men to move that stone. So, you know, in that day, there would be this big stone covering for a well to protect against children and animals and other things falling into the well and people drowning or things polluting the water. So there's this big, giant stone. It takes a couple people to move it because it's so large. And I love this. Check out what happens in verse 10. As soon as Rachel walks up, as soon as she gets close enough that that Jacob's able to get a look at her, he sees that this is a beautiful girl. And suddenly he's feeling very motivated, right? Now how many of you guys were like that when you met the the woman who's now your wife? All of a sudden you were suddenly motivated. You were like, I got to do something to get this girl to notice me. I got to get a driver's license and a car and I got to get a job and move out of my parents basement I got to learn how to read and go to night school or something I got to do whatever it takes to get this girl because she's amazing you know the right woman can be an incredible motivator for a man so all of a sudden this guy who until now has been the opposite of manly all of a sudden he mans up I say good for him he he sucks his stomach up into his chest And he goes over, and he makes some man noises, and he removes this giant stone from the top of the well all by himself, you know, and he probably pulled everything he had, but he does it, and she notices, right? He sees this beautiful girl come walking up, and all of a sudden, he goes from being Pee-wee Herman to being Hulk Hogan, and I realized that was an 80s reference, and I dated myself, but there's a few of you here who remember that stuff, so... Uh, look at verse 11. I love this part, too. It says, Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Uh, this guy, I was going to make a homeschool joke, but I'm not. He, he's, a, he's never had a girlfriend before. He doesn't know how this all works. He's just oh, figuring it out. I, I'll just, uh, yeah, I'll lift something heavy to get her attention, and then I don't know what to do next. I'll kiss her and then uh, I'll just start crying, right? <laughs> so he just starts crying like a, like a baby, just bawling, you know, and uh, quite the Casanova here. And then after he kisses her, he introduces himself. He says, oh, maybe we could talk now. I, I hear that girls like to do that. So he says, uh, I'm your cousin, and I've come to stay with your family. Now, nowadays, that would pretty much freak people out, but, but in those days, that was how it worked, and that's what happened. So she runs and tells her dad, and, and Jacob stays with them for a month, okay? So after that month, Laban approaches Jacob, and he says, hey, your family, but if you want to keep living here, I'm going to have to put you to work. So I'll pay you, but let's negotiate your wages. Jacob says, well, how about this? I want to marry your younger daughter, Rachel, but I don't have any money. So I'll work for you for seven years if you let me marry Rachel. Now, back in that day, you know, it was a real bartering thing. But uh, Laban says, yeah, I'll take seven years. That sounds great. Um, So Laban has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Leah is the older sister, and it says that she was weak in the eyes. Now, this is a, a bit of a Hebrew euphemism, which is more or less a gentle way of saying that she was hard on the eyes is how we would put it in English today. Uh, she was not very attractive. Uh, and, and we can be sure of that because there's this word, but Rachel was attractive, uh, was beautiful in form and appearance. Okay, so it, it's, a, it's contrasting them. It's making it clear to us that Rachel was attractive, but Leah was not. Um, and you can also see this reflected in their names. Uh, Rachel means little lamb, and Leah means cow. Ouch! <laughs> It's like, oh, thanks, Mom and Dad. I guess I know what you think of me. You know, and like, you got to be careful when you give your kids Bible names. You, you should really find out what they mean before you give them to your kids. You know what I mean? Uh, I have this friend. This is off my notes. So I have this friend. Uh, his middle name is Cora because his parents thought that was a cool Bible name. I'm like, do you know who Cora was in the Bible? That's not a good guy. Anyway, um... And so Jacob makes it clear, I want to marry your young, attractive daughter, and I will work for seven years to get her hand in marriage. And Laban says, you got a deal. Okay, so in that day, it was common practice to pay a bride price, which was a bunch of money that uh, the man would give to the the dad of the woman he wanted to marry in exchange for marrying his daughter. Now, this was a couple purposes behind this, but one of them was to show that this man was industrious, that he was capable of making money and saving money, and he's proven that he's going to be able to take care of the daughter and their future kids in times to come. So now here's Jacob. He's totally smitten with Rachel. She's the woman of his dreams, and he wants to marry her. So what's he going to do? He's going to get a job, right? That's cool. Good job, man. He's going to do whatever it takes so he can marry this woman and be with her. This is a guy who's truly in love. And look what it says. One of the greatest lines of poetry in the whole Bible, verse 20, says, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. There are a few things we want to learn, or there are a few things we learn about true love by looking at Jacob's love for Rachel. Number one is that true love waits, and number two is that true love works. True love waits and true love works. I would say this. I think that most women completely underestimate their value. Um, I I would say this also. I have seen a number of women that I know, young women that I know personally, who have given themselves away too quickly, too easily, and too cheaply. Look at this. Jacob thinks this woman is so amazing that he essentially gives himself into slavery for seven years just so he can be with her. That's a guy who really loves this woman. So young ladies who are not married yet, I'm going to speak to you. I want to tell you this. Don't give yourselves away too easily. If a guy really wants to be with you, he'll get it done. He'll do what it takes to be with you. Don't give yourself away too quickly, too easily, or too cheaply. And don't underestimate your value. And don't feel sorry for him, okay, if he has to wait for you or work for you. It's good for him. You know, it's been said that men are like trucks. We drive straighter with a load. I think that's true. Look at Jacob. This is good for him. Look, he's working for the first time in his life. He's becoming a man. He's got a goal. He knows what he wants, and he's getting it done. He's becoming a man. Girls, if a guy really loves you, he'll wait for you, and he will work for you. And don't give it to him too easy. You're not helping him, and you're not helping yourself. If he's not willing to wait for you, if he's not willing to work for you, then don't waste your time with him. You don't want to be with a man who doesn't treasure you. You know, girls, if a man says that he loves you, but he just can't wait until marriage to be intimate with you, That's nonsense, okay? If he really loves you, he will honor you enough to wait until he's married you in order to be intimate with you. Uh, You know, guys will often throw out certain lines like, Oh, we're already married in our hearts, babe. You know, like, you know, weddings are really expensive and we can't afford it right now. Uh, You know, girls, don't underestimate your value. Don't give yourself away too quickly, too easily, too cheaply. Yes, weddings are expensive. Look, it took this guy seven years to pay for his wedding, okay? That's a long time. And guess what? They didn't live together during that time. The custom of that day would actually prevent them from having much contact at all. They would be kept quite separate from each other. But this man gets it done because of his love for her. So, ladies, if he really loves you, he'll wait for you and he'll work for you. You're not helping him and you're not helping yourself by giving yourself away easily. So, look what happens Jacob finishes his seven years of labor for Rachel, and he goes to Laban in verse 21 and says, My time is completed. Give me my wife so I may lay with her. This is a guy who's not beating around the bush, he's been working for seven years. He's shown that he's committed, that he's following through on his word, that he's a man who who really loves this woman. He's waited for her. He's worked for her. So Laban says, sure thing. He organizes the wedding, gathers all the people together. But you see, this man Laban, he is a trickster. right? He's a con man. Uh, If you thought that Jacob was a con man, understand, Jacob is junior varsity compared to Laban. Laban is a professional. He is an all-star. He is an MVP uh, con man, right? He's the top-notch. And so what does Laban do? He's got two daughters, the pretty young one and the older not-so-pretty one. And so Laban is going to take advantage of Jacob. He sees this as an opportunity to get his daughter married off and get some free labor as well. Um, So what do you do to a family member in a vulnerable situation. Well, here's what Laban does. He dresses Leah up in the wedding garment, which would have covered her from head to toe, right? That's why Jacob didn't recognize her. They go through at the wedding, and then time comes to consummate the marriage. Jacob goes into the tent. It's dark. At wedding feasts, they usually drank wine. We don't know. He can't see a whole lot. And he's really happy because after seven years, he finally gets to marry Rachel and be with her. But in the morning, the sun comes up, and Jacob rolls over, and what is this? It's Leah, you know, what's going on? So Jacob, he just runs out of his tent, finds Laban, and he says, you deceived me. And Laban's like, yeah, I did, I know. And, uh, and, and Jacob's like, how could you do that to me? That's wrong. That's totally wrong. It's sin. You deceived me. You tricked me. Laban says, oh, sorry, bud. Didn't you know that in our country we never marry off the younger daughter first? You always got to marry the older daughter. It's called a birthright, buddy. And Jacob's like, how could you do that? That's wrong. It's terrible. It's unethical. It's irony, right? Dun, dun, dun. That's some poetic justice here, right? Jacob, the con man, he's running. Why? Because he conned his brother out of what? What? his birthright. And now what happens? Jacob, the con man, gets conned by an even better con man in regard to what? A birthright. Irony. Have you, let, me, let me ask you this. Have you ever met someone who you just couldn't stand? And then you realize that the reason you couldn't stand them was because they were just like you. Because you realize that what you see in them that drives you crazy is actually what other people see in you. That's happened to me before. Um, you know, sometimes God puts people in our lives who are just like us so that when we look at them, it's like getting a look in the mirror and we can see what we really look like from the outside so we can become aware of our folly and our shortcomings and our sins, so we can repent of them, so God can do a work of sanctification in our lives, forming our character and making us more like Jesus. So God's working on Jacob's character. He's making him into a patriarch, but he's not there yet. So how does God do that? He puts Laban in his life. Here's how I'm going to sanctify you, Jacob. I'm going to put somebody in your life who's just like you, only better. He's going to give him Laban, a guy who's just like him. Laban is a thorn in Jacob's side. He will continue to be a thorn in Jacob's side for years to come. But it makes him realize, wait a minute. What what Laban did to me is a whole lot like what I did to my dad and my brother. Oops. Lord, I, I see now. I see that I've fallen short. Lord, please forgive me. Please change me. Please make me more like you. Let me ask you, do you have anybody in your life who you just can't stand? Could it be because they're actually a whole lot like you? Is the thing which bothers you about them actually something that God wants to address and change in you? So Laban says to Jacob, I'll tell you what, if you still want Rachel, you can have her just complete the week of this one. That's because a wedding feast lasted for a week, seven days, right? He says, I'll give you Rachel too at the end of this week. Jacob says, yes, I'll do it. I'll do whatever it takes to be with this woman because I love her and I have to be with her. True love waits. True love works. In total, Jacob waits for seven years to be with this woman and he works for a total of 14 years. Because he loved her. So girls, ladies, again, don't underestimate your value. Don't give yourself away too quickly, too easily, or too cheaply. Here's our second uh, section here. Leah's longing for Jacob from verse 31 to 35. You know, it's pretty easy to feel bad for Leah in this situation, right? We see that she is an unloved wife. She desperately wants her husband to love her. But but think also about Rachel and, and Jacob. They're madly in love. They just want to be together, but every day there's Leah in their lives. Jacob doesn't love her. He's never loved her. He's never wanted to be with her. He didn't want to marry her. For Rachel, that's her sister. She has to be tormented by the knowledge that her husband is married to his sister and even sleeps with her. This is a terrible situation for everyone involved. You know, when we see polygamy in the Bible, it's kind of like when we read about murder in the newspaper, right? Just because the New York Times tells you that somebody murdered somebody doesn't mean the New York Times is encouraging you to go and murder somebody, right? Same way, the Bible tells you these people were polygamous. That doesn't mean that it's condoning it, just telling you the facts. Furthermore, every time we see polygamy in the Bible, it's always in a negative light. It always has negative repercussions. It's never encouraged. In fact, here what we have is Rachel and Leah, they're sisters who are sister wives in the truest sense. In Leviticus 18 verse 18, later on, the law will actually forbid this kind of marriage in which a man marries two sisters. So uh, because, right, why? Because this episode of sister wives did not go very well. But take note of the names that Leah gives her first son. When you look at the names that she gives her sons, you see that they're terribly revealing of the struggle that's going on inside of her. In verse 32, she names her first son Reuben. Reuben means, see, a son. Look, a son. Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. Leah thought, I've had a baby, I've given him a boy. This is going to bring us together. This is going to make him love me. But it didn't happen. Verse 33, Simeon means, the Lord has heard. And she says, because the Lord heard that I am hated, he gave me this son also. She says, now I've given him two sons. This will truly, surely win his heart. But it didn't. Verse 34, Levi means join. She says, this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. You know, Leah thought, three sons, this has got to do it. Jacob's heart will finally be joined to mine. But it wasn't. And in verse 35, Judah means praise. And notice this, this time she says, this time I will praise the Lord. You know, this time there's no mention of her husband. By son number four, Leah realizes that no matter how many sons she gives to Jacob, Jacob still isn't going to feel towards her the way that she wishes he would. Um, she, she, instead, she decides that she's just going to praise the Lord for giving her these, these precious children as gifts, rather than hoping that Jacob will finally love her because of the kids. Judah means praise, and, and that reflects Leah's attitude. Leah has wisely chosen to draw close to the Lord rather than trying to continue to win Jacob's devotion. Now, it's interesting when we look at this and we realize that although Jacob did not love Leah— he still continued to sleep with her. Uh, This story might be 4,000 years old, but there are women today who do the same exact thing that Leah did, right? They hope that by sleeping with a man, that it will cause him to love her. Um, But it didn't happen in this story, and and oftentimes it doesn't happen today either. You know, they hope that if I could just get pregnant with the baby of this man who doesn't really love me, his heart isn't really devoted to me, then maybe he will become devoted to me. But oftentimes women who who do this kind of thing, they experience the same disappointment that Leah did. They realize that neither sex nor babies is enough to make this man love them the way that they desire to be loved. Studies have shown that men are much more uh, able to separate emotions from intimacy. Uh, One one fact, or in fact, one study in the Los Angeles Times asked men if they had ever slept with a woman whom they actively disliked, and 58% said yes. However, there is one thing that Leah does right. She turns to the Lord in her loneliness and her despair. She says, I'm going to worship the Lord now. I'm going to draw near to the Lord. I'm going to stop trying to to focus my entire life on making this man love me. I'm just going to draw near to the Lord. That's the answer. Interestingly, when we look at Rachel, what we see is that Rachel also had an unfulfilled longing, but she did not come to the same conclusion that Leah did. That brings us to our third section in chapter 30, verses 1 through 24, Rachel's yearning for children. Just as Leah longed for her husband to meet her need for love and affection, Rachel longed to have children. And it tore her up that her sister, her ugly older sister, was able to have children, and she wasn't. She had always been the pretty one. She's always been the winner. But now her sister has something that she desperately wants but can't have, and that's children. So what does she tell Jacob? Check it out in chapter 30. She says, give me children or else I'm going to die. The irony of it is this. It's in childbearing that Rachel is going to die. She'll give birth to a son, Benjamin, and in childbearing she will die. After many years of struggling with infertility, eventually she will have children, but it is in receiving that one thing which she thought she must have, the thing which she demanded to have, that she will actually die. And how is that, again, for poetic justice, right? The thing she says she must have or else her life will not be worth living is the very thing which ends up taking her life. Now, isn't that true of of many of us, actually, right? There are things we think we must have. We cannot go on living if we don't get that thing. Things that we might even demand that God give us. But if, if we actually got them, maybe they would even be the end of us. Maybe they would actually ruin us. See, the fact is that God knows much better than we do what we actually need. What we see in chapter 30 is this. Rachel gets competitive with Leah for who can have the most kids. She can't get pregnant herself, so she gives her maidservant to Jacob to conceive with her. According to tradition and their culture, those children would be counted as Rachel's children. Leah, realizing that this is the one time in her life that she's ever been able to beat her sister at anything, she ramps up the competition too. And she gives Jacob her servant girl as well. You know, the names of the children reflect the competitive spirit between these two sisters who are the wives of the same man. You know, in verse 14, we read this part about the mandrakes. Now, mandrakes were a plant that's found in the region. It's quite rare, it's kind of like a strawberry, and it was believed to help um, increase fertility. But finally, at the end of the section, verse 22, we see that Rachel gets pregnant, and it's a boy. This is what she's wanted all along, right? She's finally got the thing which she really, really, really wanted that she thought she must have. And what does she name him? She names him Joseph. He's going to be important in coming chapters. But you know what Joseph means? It means, may God add. In other words, in verse 24, we see it. She's essentially saying, cool, I got a boy, but it's not enough. I need another one. I need more. Now here's, here's the difference, and I'm just wrapping it up with this. I want, I want you to see in the attitudes of Rachel and Leah toward their unfulfilled longing. I want you to see the difference in their attitude toward their unfulfilled longing. Leah turned to the Lord to fulfill her unfulfilled longing, but Rachel did not. And ultimately she dies seeking the fulfillment she desperately longs for. I'll say this, the best thing that can happen in a marriage or in a family relationship or even in a friendship is when a person stops expecting their spouse or their children or another person to fulfill them, to love them and affirm them and, and fill that need that they have, that sense of lack that they have in their life. And, they, and rather, they find that love and affirmation and fulfillment in the Lord. When they recognize, when they realize, my husband is not able to meet the deepest longings of my heart. My children aren't able to fulfill the deepest longings of my heart. My longing for love and affirmation and affection. And they say, I can only find that in you, Lord. Wives, your husband is not Jesus Christ. And you say, you're telling me he's not. Isn't that the truth? Well, then don't expect him to fulfill the deepest longings of your heart and soul that can only be filled by Jesus. And men, the same goes for you, and the same goes for parents and friendships. We all need to realize that in the depths of our heart, there is a need, there is a longing for love and affirmation and identity and acceptance that can only be fulfilled by the love of God through a relationship with God found in Jesus Christ. It's a God-shaped hole. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Paul the Apostle said this in Romans chapter 8. He said, Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. But so oftentimes, we don't recognize... That longing of our heart for what it truly is. A longing to commune with God. A longing which was placed in our hearts by God for that very purpose. In order to lead us to him. In order that we would seek out fellowship with him. Oftentimes we mistake it for a longing for whatever it is that we think we need. Which we for some reason don't have in our lives right now. For Rachel it was the longing for children. For Leah it was the longing to be loved by her husband. I remember back when uh, we still lived in Hungary, Rosemary and I attended a seminar for parents who wanted to adopt children, and this was uh, kind of a prerequisite for being eligible to adopt. And I remember there were probably about uh, 10, 12 couples in the room, and everyone had to go around and state out loud why they wanted to adopt a child. Uh, And out of 10 couples, there were only two couples, Rosemary and I were one of them, who said that we wanted to adopt because we wanted to help a child. Everyone else said they wanted to adopt in order to fulfill a longing within themselves. Um, for some, it was the longing to have a child. One woman in particular, uh, she was honest enough to say that she was single, and she wanted to have a child to fulfill the uh, the need she felt for companionship. I also knew couples through our church in Hungary who, who struggled with infertility for many years and I would hear them say things like if I only had a baby my life would be fulfilled if I only had a baby my life would be complete now let me say that I truly feel compassion for those people and and I feel compassion for the pain and longing that they're expressing Uh, I don't discount it at all but I, I would have to say that I do believe it is misappropriated because I believe that if they had a child, that they would find that that child would not fulfill them in the way that they expected. Uh, they would still have a sense in their heart and soul that something is missing, that they are incomplete. If it's not a child, if it's not the love of a husband, then it will be something else, guaranteed. Not to mention, think about this. Think about how much of a burden that places. That kind of expectation places on a child who comes into that situation, right? They say, hey, you are eight pounds of fulfillment for me. And that's your job, junior. I hope you're up for it. You are here to fulfill me. I know you're only a week old, but you have a tall order to meet. I sure hope you do a good job. I sure hope you don't disappoint me because I'm counting on you. I've got high expectations for what you're going to do for me. And that's not fair to any child. And, and think about a spouse or a friend who comes into that kind of situation with those expectations. All the time, the one person is, is shouting without words, with their actions, shouting, fulfill me, make me whole, complete me, don't disappoint me. All my hope is in you to fill the sense of lack that I feel in my heart and soul. I'm telling you, that's a tall order. It's, it's, and no one except the Lord is able to fulfill it. That's that's why it's so frustrating. But think about this. What would happen? What happens when you stop seeking your fulfillment and things which are incapable of meeting that need anyway? What happens when you do what Leah did? At least she did it in part. What happens when you turn to the Lord and seek him to be your fulfillment? And you find your identity in who you are in him. You find your value, you find love in who you are in him. And you truly embrace the gospel message. And and you experience the spirit of God entering your life and doing what? Romans 5, it says that he pours out the love of God in your heart and fulfilling the deepest longing of your heart, which ultimately is a longing for him. What happens then is this. I want you to imagine this. It's like a cup. Imagine a cup, right, that has no bottom. No matter how much you pour into it, it's always empty. It's never full. It's always empty. That's the image of our hearts and souls apart from an intimate knowledge of God, apart from a relationship with God. But what happens when you truly embrace the gospel message is it plugs up the bottom of that cup, right? It fills that gaping hole. And when the Spirit of God pours out the love of God in your heart, then it's not only, not only does that cup fill up, But what happens? It overflows. And when your cup is overflowing, that means you actually have something to give to others around you. Rather than than always being a needy person who needs others to pour into you, you now become an overflowing cup who has something to pour into other people. And that brings us back to where we started. That's part of God's ultimate goal for all his children. Sanctification, right? To form our character, to make us more like Christ— and to make us people who are a blessing to others around us. May it be so in our lives. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your sovereignty over all of our circumstances. We thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to save us and, Lord, enough to sanctify us. And, Lord, we just want to say right now, Lord, we... Ask that you would sanctify us. We ask that you would do a work in us. Lord, root out sin and folly and rebellion in our hearts, Lord. Renew us. Lord, help us to see that the thing that we truly long for is you. Lord, and we pray that you would plug up the gaping hole in our soul with you, with the love that the gospel speaks of, with the identity and the acceptance and the affirmation that the gospel gives us. And Lord, that you would fill our cups to overflowing, that we might be a blessing to all around us. We pray that in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.